You're listening to episode 51 of the Take the Reins podcast with Nikki Porter. Welcome, and thanks for stopping by. You're listening to Take the Reins, a weekly personal growth podcast for horse owners. If you're invested in becoming the best version of yourself in all your relationships, both human and equine, this is the spot for you. Through our conversations, you will learn how to become a stronger communicator, leader, and deepen the connection you crave both in and out of the arena. Horses have an awful lot to teach us, yet very little of it actually has to do with horses. They reflect back to you who you are emotionally, physically, and energetically. They are a mirror to your soul, and it is time to take an honest look at who you are and who you want to become. I can't wait to connect with you, so here we go. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Take the Reins podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Porter, and as you can tell, I finally have all of my computer stuff back with me, and I am so relieved. I have a new computer now, and I have a hard drive full of all of the stuff off of my old computer because I was written an email from Apple saying, we have a recycling program, so... Here I am, super excited to be back with you with my regular intro and outro, and you know, this has kind of inspired me a little bit to just go and revamp my intro and outro a little bit, so stay tuned for a little change in uh, in that area of the podcast within the next few months, and let's dive right in today because I have been waiting to have you hear this interview for weeks and it has been uh it has been hard not being able to just have it out there for you because I had it in my mind that you were going to be able to listen to it almost as soon as it was recorded and it is a fantastic interview it honestly brought tears to my eyes at one point and I can't wait for you to hear it and I can't wait to listen back to it again myself because there's a couple points in here that are, they're just so emotional because you can so hear the heart and the passion in the two gentlemen that I'm speaking to about horses and their experience with horses, their love for their horses and their career with their horses. It is It's just so good. I can't wait for you to hear it. So I am going to dive right in. But first, I want to introduce you to my two guests. Now, this was a little bit of a different interview for me because normally I only interview one person at a time. uh, Or I interview two people that are both... Uh, part of the same business or are really doing the interview together. Now, this was unique because I was interviewing a certain individual, but it was almost as if I had a co-host because 
the whole reason this interview was set up and the whole reason it was actually able to take place was thanks to Dan Northrup, who he got on the call with, or on a call with me one day and he was so pumped and so jacked up. He was like, you have to speak to this guy. I need to have him on your show. You're going to absolutely love him and so will your audience. And can I please organize it? And I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. That's fantastic. So he organized it and I invited him to come on for the interview as well because I knew that the conversation that he was going to have would be so inspired because he was so excited to be able to have this individual on the show. So let me just tell you a little bit about the other person on the end of this interview. So one person, I'll you know, if you haven't heard the Dan Northrup interview, Dan is a close friend of ours who is a horse trainer and coach in, out of Quispamsis, New Brunswick. And I think it was episode five. I can't remember exactly. But early on in the Take the Reins podcast, I interviewed Dan and it, it ended up being one of the most successful interviews uh, or the most popular interviews that I have done. So if you are curious about Dan and more about Dan, especially after you hear this, this episode, go back and take a listen. But Dan has introduced both you and I during this interview to Mr. Mike Moser. Now, you will notice in the interview that I say Mike Moser, and that is because when I was in high school, I went to, to school with people with the last name M-O-S-E-R, and we pronounced it Moser, and then... Mr. Moser came on and I pronounced it as I knew it. And uh, so I apologize, Mike, for the mispronunciation, but uh, I have it right now. So Mike started his career with horses when he was 19 years old, beginning in 1976. He quit college and went to work for a horse trader, Bud Sims. Bud had Western pleasure in halter horses. From there, in 1979, Mike went to work for Alex Ross. In 1982, he moved to Texas, and in 1983, he started his own business specializing in Western pleasure horses. In 1998, he started showing Rainers and officially quit showing pleasure Western Pleasure Horses in 1999. Since then, he's gone on to training and showing ranch riding horses beginning in 2015. Mike has a superior knowledge of riding, training, and showing Western Pleasure reining and ranch riding horses with extensive knowledge in buying prospects and selling finished horses. His early career included raising, breaking, training, and showing horses. He has vast knowledge of horse behavior, a strong ability to work with riders, teaching them to ride, show, and understand their horse. He has many championships and accomplishments, and in his career, he's had eight All-American Quarter Horse Congress championships. The list of Mike's accomplishments is extensive. He currently buys, trains, and sells rainers and ranch riding horses and has started back with Western Pleasure Horses as well. He recently remarried in October of 2018 to his wife, Rhea, and currently lives in Gainesville, Texas with his two dogs, Cole and Cowboy. 
get ready to listen to one of my all-time favorite conversations. And again, can't thank Dan enough for bringing Mike along onto the show and for Dan to be a part of it as well. It was such a pleasure to speak to these two gentlemen, and I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Now sit back and enjoy the ride with myself, Mike, and Dan. Hi guys, welcome to the Take the Reins podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Porter, and thank you for joining me. I would like to introduce you to Dan Northrup and Mike Mosier. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Thanks Nikki. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So Dan, I'm going to come to you first because I've had you on the show before. And I have to say, I should have checked my stats before we came on to talk tonight, but I believe you were your episode, it, I definitely had it within 2020. It finished within the top five episodes out of 46. So oh, that's great. Yeah. So that was fantastic. I knew I wanted you back on the show anyway. And then I received a phone call from you. I think it was only last week. <laughs> <laughs> so things happen fast around here. And uh, you're super excited to be able to hook me up with a conversation with Mr. Mosier here. So I can't wait to dive in with just the two of you and deal with the conversation you and I had about how excited you were about Mike's horsemanship and, uh, and all the things that he's accomplished. So Dan, why don't you just tell us, introduce us because yeah. there's lots of people that are going to hear this episode right now that maybe didn't hear the episode with you earlier on in the show. So introduce quickly who you are, uh, where you are and your involvement in horses and then how, you know, Mike. Okay. Well, I'm Dan Northrup from Quispam Sis, ride pleasure horses, uh, still some, and have gotten more into the rainers. We have our own facility here in Quispam Sis. Um, and that's Quispam Sis, New Brunswick. New Brunswick, yes. Which is currently, it's snowing right now. It's nasty. <laughs> um, first got involved with horses when I was about three years old. My grandfather trained and drove standard bred racehorses. So the horses were in my gene pool and just something I always wanted to do and uh, never remember not wanting to be around horses. So basically uh, started young and haven't looked back. I love that the introduction to horses was your grandfather because I put out a post on social media a couple of weeks ago about the fact that my grandfather was the one that really was like the catalyst to us be, you know, being in horses and being involved in horses. And so many people came on and shared their stories of how it was their grandfather that started their passion for horses as well. So if, uh, if you're listening and your grandfather has been part of your passion or has really driven you to be uh, involved in horses, you should touch base with me. I'd love to hear your story too. All right, Dan, that's fantastic. Tell us, how do you know Mike? Well, I know Mike as a result of the time that I spent with Alex Ross in Greensboro, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike had worked for Alex before I was there. And uh, I knew of Mike anyway, just by following, you know, how he was doing in his career at the time. And uh, along the time I started following Mike, was when I was really getting into uh, Alex's techniques and uh, following Alex in, at that time, like the uh, Performance Horseman magazine. Mm -hmm. And then of course, I think just one thing led to another. Don't remember how I connected Mike up with Alex, but distinctly remembering watching Mike. Uh, at the time, there was that show on uh, America's Horse. You remember that, Mike? Yes, I do. Yep. And uh, I saw Mike on there showing triples 
uh, and I think Mike won the world show, uh, the two-year-olds at the world show in the pleasure that year. Is that right, Mike? Yes, that was 1986. And okay. That that actually was the first year that they started the two-year-old Western Pleasure uh, class at the World Show. So I remember watching Mike's show, and then uh, the first time I went to Alex's, just on a whim, really, just called him and asked him if I could come down to ride. Uh, it happened to be that that month Mike uh, drove up from Texas and was there looking at some horses, if I remember correctly. So I got to meet Mike, which was a big thrill to me at the time. And uh, then, then when I ended up staying at Alex's, uh, of course, you know, I ran into Mike a few other times, you know, at some horse shows, and then maybe a few other times that when that he would come up or whatever. And then we drove down there one time, Alex and I and Jamie Pate uh, visited with Mike at his place in Aubrey. And uh, yeah, the unique thing I liked about Mike right off the bat, I mean, he was at the top of his game then. And I was just a guy working for Alex, but Mike never, he had no ego and always treated with me, me with respect, like acted like he cared, like what you thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, he probably doesn't remember, but I sure do. He was riding Awesome Mister in Raleigh, North Carolina. I think it was early when he got the horse and he was riding him around. They asked me, you know, how he looked, but to me, that was a big deal. So uh, that's the kind of guy Mike was. So, uh, you know, I always really admired him that way. And then when I got to know his approach a little better, um, I mean, Mike was like 35 years ahead of his time, I think. Because Mike was talking about connection with a horse and, you know, how to, I think Mike's words that he had told me one time were, you know, how to build a rapport with a horse. And I remember him saying to me that, you know, when you build a good rapport, if you're making reference to like a pleasure horse on the rail, when you're loping down the rail, if the horse gets worried or scared, instead of jumping off the rail, he'll crawl up inside of you. In other words, look to you, Mm. you know, for for security or you know if, if you're okay the horse will you know be more secure and whatever right. or wherever you're asking them to perform so mm-hmm. for me like I I'm so passionate about trying to do better and learn more that it was just uh it was it was pretty cool really getting to just because nobody talked about it then that's awesome um, Dan and I remember yeah I'm going to interrupt you for a second. So you, I could right go on now, for a while. No, I know. <laughs> and you will, I know you, but uh, the one thing that I want to interrupt you for is that you just said, you know, you always want to learn more and do more. And I love that about you. And my question to you is how long have you been in the horse world? How many years? You want me to tell you how old I, I am? No, you don't have to say your age. I don't really care. <laughs> well, I, I was just teasing. Um, well, I, I started at the track with my grandfather when I was three. Right. And I'm 60. So how often do you feel like you're just starting to figure things out? Today. Right? Right. Yeah. 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 So I think this it's morning. really important for people to hear that. Yeah. yeah this I, morning, I think that's the same for everybody. Yeah. You know, or the true horseman anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're always learning more. Mm-hmm. Always. Absolutely. That keeps All right. it fun. 
Oh, for sure. And uh, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself to us and tell us where you're speaking to us from and a brief background. And I say brief, but I've read your background and it's very impressive. So feel free to go into whichever detail and then we'll get into a few few conversations about your horsemanship. And I know that Dan has some questions for you too. Okay. Yeah, I'm Mike Moser. Uh, me and my wife, Rhea, we live here in Gainesville, Texas. Uh, I basically have lived in Gainesville since 1984. I was from North Carolina. Hickory, North Carolina was my hometown. And I moved to, to Texas in 1982, in the summer of 82. And Actually, I had taken a job. Uh, I'll back up a little. I moved to Texas. I, there was two guys, a guy named Jack Benson and a guy named Jerry Stanford. And <laughs> at the time, Jack Benson owned a stud called The Investor. And he was probably the hot stallion at the time, especially for Western Pleasure Horses. And, of course, Jerry Stanford rode for him. And they had come to a show in North Carolina actually a couple times and I had met them and, and they were like, you need to move to Texas. You need to, you need to be in Texas. And, and of course, kind of being a kid, you know, in the horse business from back there, you know, you always want to live in Texas anyway. So, but they kind of made me a deal. They're like, Hey, look, if you'll move to Texas, we'll give you a place to live and we'll feed you and look after you until you can find yourself a really good job. So I did. I uh, ended up, I left my dog with Harry Serio. Dan, do you remember Harry? The, mm-hmm. He was a farrier. No. Then anyway, so I moved. I came out and uh, stayed with Jerry Stanford, him and Marty, his wife. And, and then after the Congress that year, I got a job with a guy named John Mulholland that lived in Oakland, in uh, Edmond, Oklahoma. And I worked for John for exactly a year and then uh, moved back to Texas and went on my own. Awesome. And the rest so, is history. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Fantastic. Pretty much. Dan, you gave me a phone call about a week ago. Maybe it was just a little over a week ago and you were super excited and your excitement is different than my excitement. Can we, should I tell a quick story about when you came with me to buy Ford and Sure. <laughs> so Dan, Dan, when Dan called me super excited the other day, there's like, you can tell by the tone in his voice and he's like jacked up and he's, he's like, Oh, Nikki, I have something to tell you. He's ready to talk. And I say this because sometimes my excitement tends to not be shown as well as others. And Dan came with me to look at a horse in Ontario and we decided we were going to buy this little horse. He was a great little guy. And we're sitting at supper on our way to get on the plane. And Dan looked at me and he said, Oh, are you excited? I said, yeah, I'm really excited. And he goes, this is, this is you excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is me excited. So Dan was a little more expressive in his excitement when he called me and was talking to me about Mike a little while ago. And Dan, what had you so pumped about your conversation with me that night? Just because I think Mike's thought process and his philosophy fits perfect Mm -hmm. with what you're trying to get out there. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is I think Mike is very unique in the horse show trainer world. Mike's like, uh, my impression is like Mike really likes his horses and they're not a vehicle Mm -hmm. to get a job done. Mm -hmm. And I think, don't you feel that way, Mike? Uh, Did we lose him? No, there he is. No, no, you got me. I'm having a hard time uh, talking because Dan, you're right. You know, I've loved horses since I was a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, they've they've been awfully, awfully good to me. 
you know, over the years. So yeah, well, that's the difference with Mike. Yeah, I was going to say spoken like a true horseman right there. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And the thing, the thing that I love about him is that he's he's taken horses that, you know, we talk about you know deciphering a horse. I think the last time we talked about, it, I said I enjoy getting them in now that are a little troubled mm-hmm. because you know they're they're like overstimulated by people's just lack of uh, awareness of you know how they're handling the horse even mm-hmm. Mike takes horses has taken horses and the proof is in the pudding because a lot of people can say you know do this do that or whatever but based on what is is what he's doing successful successful mm-hmm. um, Mike takes horses and I know he can give you a lot of examples mm-hmm. that were like just wouldn't have made it period mm-hmm. but he not only made them into great horses he went out and and like one like the biggest prize was in the event he was showing and at the time like I don't know like won the congress like eight times but not always with a horse that came out of the womb loping with their head down compliant right Right, Mike yeah like that's right Dan you know I've never I never had a client to give me a check an open check and say go find me a horse you know they was all horses that, you know, were either sent to me or that I bought or, you know, that they were. I never catch road horses. I mean, I think I catch road a horse maybe one time in my life. All the horses that I've shown, they were horses that I actually trained. Most of them from the very beginning. I know one you catch yeah. road with a success story. Which one? You remember Leah Leaguer? Yes. Yes, I do quite a bit. I love that mare. Do you she, want me to uh, tell a story? Do you want me to tell a story, or do you want to tell? It? <laughs> well, you might know the other side. I knew that, of course, Alex had bought her for some people that I had known ever since I was had been alive. I mean, they knew me when I was, you know, three, four years old. Okay, uh, Huffman's. Yeah, I love them. And they were really good friends with my brother. My brother and them used to show in open shows all the time. And now I'm talking about back in the early 60s. But anyway, they had come out and they had bought a mare from John Dean, a guy in Toga. And she was eligible for the solid gold fraternity. And so they needed to get a ride back for her. Anyway, somehow they ended up asking me if I would, I was going to the solid gold anyway. And they asked me if I would take her and show her up there and then they would meet there and then take her home and you know that was another deal down where that mare that mare and me just fit uh, i don't really know how to how to say this i mean she was a she was a really a nice mare but she fit me to a t and every day that at the show every day that i rode her she got better she got better she hooked up with me she picked up my legs and uh of course, we ended up winning the solid gold fraternity, and it was big and tough at that time. Uh, yeah, that was a huge deal at that time, Nikki. Yeah. Hmm. And she was, uh, but you know, it was a proud deal because I had known the Huffmans, like I said, since I, as far back as I can remember. And, you know, for them at that time to win the solid gold fraternity, I mean, they were tickled. They, you know, they had just bought this mare. I think I maybe had her at my house maybe a week or two before I went to the show. But I can remember up at the show, I remember every time I got on her to ride her, she was better and she was better. And of course, uh, as long as over the years, me and Whistle had lots of battles in the show pen. But it, they'd had a mare that they had bought for $100,000 and they were showing her and we ended up winning it. 
on Leah. But yeah, Leah was one of, I, I love that mare. Like I said, she fit me like a T. Isn't that nice when you find those horses? Well, yeah. one of the cool, one of the cool things, Mike probably, I don't know if he knows this or not, but after that show, Tony and Debbie Huffman, when that mare came home, Debbie was a real sweetheart. And God bless her. She's, she's not with us any longer, but I remember her saying she had a real long Southern draw. And she said at the, correct me if I'm wrong on some of the details, Mike, but what I remember is uh, the awards presentation was in the show pen. And Debbie said, you know, Dan, when Mike went to walk away after the awards presentation, you know, that mayor followed him. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, that was kind of a unique story, I thought, just yeah. because mm -hmm. what Mike didn't say, my from what I understood from Tony and Debbie, previously that mare never really got hooked up in the show pen. Right. Was a really right. nice horse, but just didn't get finished off. Is that right, Mike? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. She and I asked Mike. I said, "What did you do different?" And of course, typical nonchalant Mike's like, "Oh, well, I just taught her to keep keep her shoulders up." And yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a pretty amazing story. I think that, yeah. to arrive at a horse show like that. And I think that's the very first horse that Mike ever told me about his description on like developing a rapport and how like the horse would look to him instead of like get worried and jump off the rail. It was Leah. It was like a, a lot of mine, what she liked, what she didn't have before. Of course, I'm trying to think what year that would have been in 1990. And yes. I had the horse Docomos that year too. Uh, but that mare loved riding off of your legs. You know, and that's, uh, I had kind of put that on her. Now, again, I'm not talking about what the guys do today, you know, with the spur traps and all that. But, uh, you know, I, I always use my legs a lot. Uh, to me, your legs and your hands should be 50-50. They should work together. And, you know, that's what that mare really picked up on was paying attention to my legs. And, but, yeah, she, she was cool she was just a really a cool mare but you know dan i've been you know i've had that rapport with all my horses mm. uh, yes and i don't know what to do here do i just go ahead and tell yeah uh, you go for it stories so, because absolutely you tell whatever stories you want and if you want to just just tell us when you say rapport now I have an idea of what you're talking about because I, I, that was my main focus. I used to be a classroom teacher, Mike, and my main focus was building a rapport with my students. And it was the one thing that I really felt like I excelled at. So I feel like that's the same sort of idea that you're thinking about. So why don't you just explain exactly what you mean by building rapport to the audience and then well, you tell as many stories as you want. What I'm talking about building rapport is I'm talking about getting into the horse's head. Mm-hmm. You know, figuring out what does he like? What does he not like? For me, it was never about having the same training regiment where every horse had to do this and they had to do that and they had to fit me and they have to do it because, you know, I'm not changing. I would change depending on the horse, mm -hmm. you know, what the horse really needed. And uh, I am going to go back. And now that I'm older, of course, I'm 63 now. And there's a lot of times I look back, you know, and I think about things and, stuff but when I was 19 I had come home from college and I got a job working for a guy that I I knew he showed horses with the Huffmans and my brother and all that uh when he was young and he had kind of become a horse trader 
uh, he lived in Morgan, North Carolina. So I quit college and I started work or I worked for him that summer. Then I decided to quit college, but he had a partner. Uh, his partner was an old man. I say he was an old man. I think he was probably in his seventies at that time. Of course I was 19 and this man's name was Brasco Samuel Mull, M-U-L-L. And of course he couldn't, he didn't ride any, but he would, would always, the yearlings and the two-year-olds that we got in, he would always come and lunge them every day. And, I mean, I'd seen him knock him down, drag him around, almost kind of hurt him, and but he did But after he worked with one for two to three weeks, I mean, the horses knew the voice commands, and, you know, I mean, he, he could completely turn them around. And so I always had a lot of respect for Sam. But I remember one time, actually, there was three things that he told me uh, in the two years that I was up there that have always stuck with me. And one of them was the very first horse that I had ever, from the first time the horse ever had a saddle on it to me riding it, you know, I had done all the work on it. And I had it trained and I had it ready to go show. And, but I was telling Sam, Sam, you know, you got to come look, I want you to watch my horse. I want you to see what you think, you know, and I'm all crowds, you know, and stuff. So, so I get on the horse and, and the horse rides really, really good. And, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm big headed and I'm, you know, feeling good. And I said, Sam, what do you think? He said, well, you're halfway there. And, you know, cause I'm 19, I'm cocky. And I'm like, what the hell you mean halfway there? He said, well, you got the horse doing his job now. Now you got to teach him to enjoy doing his job. And, of course, I can remember at the time, you know, I got upset kind of about it. Like, what the hell is he talking about? But he, that always stuck, you know. And, like, looking back, that's one of the things that I'm the proudest of, you know, is is that, you know, my horses ended up, and all of them that, want, that I won on, they all enjoyed doing what they did. You know, now there might have been tough times, you know, a year before that or six months before that, but in the end, they all enjoyed what they did, and I enjoyed them. Mm, so my, uh, I told Dan this story, but when I first took the job with the guy that lived in Edmond, Oklahoma, because he had the horses, and actually I came there, and it was exactly during the World Show of 1982. I rode the mare for the first time, and they had put the mare on the walker for an hour. They gave her a CC of Ace, and then they had me to ride it. And so I got on her. The guy probably had an indoor arena that was probably 100 by 120. It was small. And I got her walked around one time, and I got off of her because she was fixing to hurt me or herself. Or they had kept this mare bitted up and abused her. And, I mean, she would tie up and stuff, uh, you know, I mean, she she was bad. And so at the World Show 1982, while that's going on, I mean, the guy wanted rid of her. You know, he didn't think she was no good. And you know, he had probably sold her for 1500 if he could have got it. Uh, I started riding the mare, though, but I would save her till the last horse of the day. And when I was finished with all the others and I would get on her and I'd just walk her around. Actually, at the very first, I mean, I'd just get on her and just walk her around. And I mean, this went on for well till the first of the year till january sometime but i think it was for a month all i did was just walk around and then later on then i started jogging her around some and i'd even put some food in the corners of the of that arena and, and we'd walk and we'd jog around and i'd take her over and i'd let her eat you know something because it was usually feeding time when i was riding her anyway so and uh just shorten up the story at that time the land of enchantment circuit in Albuquerque, New Mexico, was the second largest horse show in the 
country behind the Court Orders Congress. So this was in like December, November and December of 82. By April, the Land of Enchantment Circuit was the first show that I ever took her to, that she'd ever been to. And she was circuit champion. Um, she went on, of course, that year you had to, it took almost 60 points to qualify, 55 or so. And I showed her at all the big shows. Well, I said around, it was Denton and Tulsa and, and the mare became unbeatable. Hmm. And that during the world show in 1983, she uh, won the world show, the Junior Western Pleasure. And we ended up, we sold her to the Meekums, uh, Catsy Meekum, for $100,000. And that was in one year's time that she changed that much. But, it, you know, also it did a lot for me. It just, like, confidence-wise and, and all that. But, yeah, that mare went from being where the people just wanted rid of her to unbeatable. I mean, you couldn't beat her. She was that good. Wow. That's a great story. The, Go ahead, Dan. The unique thing about that is uh, Mike wasn't just my perception of that story. He wasn't really concerned with teaching her walk, jog, and lope. Right. He just wanted to get her mind in a place where she was ready to learn something. Mm. Yeah. And for somebody to have the patience mm. and confidence to stick with what Mike did as long as he did. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's one thing to say, oh, yeah, she got a lot better. But it's it's more than that. She got a lot better. Well, she won the freaking world show. Right. Yeah. I mean, the proof's in the pudding. Again, it's it's quantifiable. Yeah. Now, Mike, did you see something special in her that you knew you couldn't give up on her from like when you first had that ride or what made you stick it out? Not at the very beginning. You know, like she was a nice mover, but she was real strong. I mean, she was a real strong mare. But I think in the beginning, it was just that she had been I want to say like abused but I don't want you know she just she was up to she was a challenge Mm -hmm. I guess so more I didn't see any greatness in her at that time in the very beginning I didn't it's not like she was the fanciest mover on a lunge line or Mm -hmm. anything like that it was just more it was a challenge you know just to see if I could get her doing anything and it started off like that and then like I said and she started trusting me and in January and February then she started real jogging a loping. And I mean, this mare could jog like she was the best, best jogger of any horse you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, it's just, she started coming together. And like I said, at the end, I mean, she was, she was unbeatable, you know, cause I was still a kid. I say a kid, I was 25, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had just moved out to Texas and North Carolina. I had been, I had been doing pretty well. I had left Alex's, but I was winning. So people knew me in North Carolina, but when I moved out here, nobody really knew me, you know? And of course, Tommy Mannion and Jody Gallion and Dave Page and on, on, you know, those were all the big shots. And when I showed this mare against them, they couldn't beat her. That's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And that, Dan, that was what you were so excited about. (laughs) Yep, that was it. (laughs) That was it. And it was great to hear the story from you, Mike. And it was also great to hear the story from Dan after you had told him, because you could just tell how much of an inspiration you are to Dan. And I could tell that, you know, I know that when he hears stories like that from horsemen like you, that he very much takes it into his program 
and tries to look at things differently. And that's what I respect so much about Dan when we have those conversations about his horsemanship and his his different uh, situations that he comes against. So those are my favorite conversations, Dan. Yeah. All right, Dan, do you have a question for Mike? Did, did you always, did it just come by you naturally, Mike, to get more into the horse's mind than like most people were doing at the time? Or how did you develop that skill? Mm, great question. You know, I don't really know. Uh, you know, uh, I'll go back and tell stories from when I was young, but my earliest memories are riding my brother's mare. Now, my brother at the time was 18 years older than me. And of course, he was showing, of course, all they had in North Carolina at that time was open shows. And I, uh, we lived next, well, my parents and I lived next to my grandfather's farm. And my grandfather, he still farmed with mules at the time. But my brother kept his mare there, and I had a couple of uncles that kept their horses there. You know, so that's where I, you know, I stayed at the barn all the time with the horses. Mm-hmm. And even as a kid, you know, I loved feeding the horses. And I, actually, at that time, we would feed, instead of grain, we would feed corn. And actually, it was the corn would still be on the cob. You know, and I don't know, I, I just I always liked to feed the horses, and then I'd sit down at the barn and listen to them eat. Okay. Right. (laughs) um, And then I think, you know, some of the things like that old man, you know, Sam Mull told me that that always stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was always taught, even coming up and kind of before that, you know, if my brother and and his wife and stuff, it was always a compassion for horses. It It wasn't ever whipping horses i mean you know wasn't ever forcing them you know i was always taught you know kind of as a kid to to if a horse did something wrong we'll figure out why he did that Mm -hmm. right you know but yet it's it's a kind of a strange story because i got to show midnight two or three times whenever i was probably seven or eight years old but that's all i ever showed in you i never had a horse of my own you know and and so, but I always went to the horse shows. I'd always go to horse shows and I'd watch. Now, even while I was in high school, I would go a lot of times. Of course, by then, my dad had moved into the city and I became a city kid, but was in the sports and all that. But I'd still, I'd, I'd always kept me a pair of boots and a hat. And whenever I could, I would always, after I got my driver's license, I would find where there's a horse show at and I'd just go and watch. But I watched from the time I was a little kid. And so I don't know, you know, and like I said, some of the lessons that the old man, some of the things he would tell me. And I was also, Dan, I have never told you this. I'm going to tell you another story about a horse that I was around. When I quit working for the horse trader, I uh, went to work for a guy's name was Dr. Ashworth. It was in Hickory, North Carolina, my hometown. And he had had a farm. It was really, really nice. And but he had a stud horse called Super Impressive. Now, Super Impressive was one of the great, one of the early Impressive sons. Now, this would have been in 1977, uh, I think, and uh, 78. But anyway, Super Impressive, I think he had won the Congress as a yearling in the halter. He was a great halter horse. And everybody in the country knew him. And when I first went to work for this guy, uh, the horse was at a halter horse trainer in Illinois, a guy named Dale McDavitt. Anyway, they shipped the horse down. He gets there. Dan, this is the meanest horse I've ever been around in my life. I mean, oh, wow, he'll kill you. 
And actually, there was two guys that unloaded him out of the horse trailer, one on one side and one on the other, and they brought him in. And what it, this horse was so beautiful, but he was so strong. You know, like I said, he, this was a big time of the biggest of the halter horses. And he had been fought with so much that he also knew if there's going to be a fight, he was getting the first punch in. Right. You know, he wasn't a silly horse at all. Like some of the studs get kind of silly and are young. There was nothing silly about him. He was all business. And uh, I was scared to death of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was out there by myself, of course, around all the other horses. But I, I was worried. You know, how was I? I'd never been around a horse like that. That was that bad. And, you know, it's too long a story. I'll just tell you six months later, six, nine months later, I could jump on him, ride him bareback, you know, just use the cotton lead rope and let him around. I mean, you know, he ended up being my friend. And wow. the long story short was he was sick and tired of everybody trying to be trying to get him, you know, mm-hmm. like I could take that cotton lead rope off of him and put a chain under his chin. And right away, he became a different horse, you know. Mm-hmm. But I could go back to that cotton lead rope. I could, you know, could ride him around bareback. I could do anything with him. And that horse, the old man taught me a lot of things about, you know, like making the horses enjoy what they do. But super impressive taught me how to handle stud horses. Mm-hmm. And nice. really from then on, of course, when I went to work for Alex, we had some bad stud horse, some bad stallions, halter stallions. But uh, after super impressive, he taught me how to handle stallions. And actually my whole life, even now, I would prefer to have a stallion than I would a mare or a gelding mm-hmm. uh, or a good one. But uh, super impressive left a, a, made a big impact on me. And again, it wasn't forcing him into doing anything. It was, you know, teaming up with him and doing the right thing. So Wow, that's amazing. That uh, your ability to read the horse and have an under just – good instincts to understand how to make that work uh i think like very rare don't you nikki oh absolutely yeah back then there wasn't like now you can go on youtube and yeah you can just get inundated with information or go on the internet or whatever mm-hmm. there's, there's i mean you know it's like learn to play the guitar and if you can get on the internet any song you want to learn how to play to somebody on there show you note for note but there wasn't back then is that how you learned dan I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm still learning. Yeah. I've, I've heard about how good he is with a guitar. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not too bad. <laughs> I'm a closet player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only not so much because you go to his house and you know he's he's in his happy place when he's with right. his guitar. <laughs> well, Mike, that's a, that's a great story. And I think it's fantastic for people to be able to hear someone speak about really listening to what the horse is saying they need versus going in. There's so much conversation around, especially around studs. And I think it's an important conversation, but sometimes it's taken with a bit of a different, I don't know if it's taken out of context, but so many people go in and and they're so concerned with, you just have to get respect. That horse has to respect you. And I think it's taken out of out of the context of a true horseman sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I laugh today because, uh, of course, I've, you know, been in the reining horses for the last 20 years or so. And now I'm actually kind of 
kind of get, I've, I've got some ranch riding horses and then I've had a pleasure horse that I've showed that some of the last two years that I've thoroughly enjoyed. She's kind of showed me back what I really enjoyed doing was the pleasure horses. But I hear guys nowadays talk about the rainers and all, oh, he's so study, he's so study. I, you know, I, well, they don't have any idea what a study horse can really be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they didn't have those impressive studs, did they, Mike? <laughs> well, it wasn't just the impressives; it was the the fact that you had those harder horses, right? You know, and you were beefing them up, and you know, giving them very limited exercise, and you know, to them, they thought you was picking on them all the time. And mm. but yeah, those I I get tickled at some of the trainers today just because a horse is uh, silly or they're having a little bit of a hard time riding. Uh, train the oh, he's so study he. Well, they don't have any idea of what a real stud can actually do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if someone was to say to you, can you help me help my horse to enjoy their job? What would you say to them? You know, uh, I, th- I think I can, but I can't tell you. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's something that I can show you, mm-hmm. but it's something that's it's hard to communicate. You know, I've never been a, a self-promoter. Mm. You know, even even back in the day, I never ran ads. I didn't ever really do any of that. I never really done clinic at the at the time. You know, of course, I was too busy training horses really to do clinics. But I can remember after the World Show in '83, that was my first World Championship. But Horseman Magazine had contacted me and they wanted me to do an article, which I did. You know, and uh, but before mine came out, the copy before that came out, and it was a month, and it was. I'll never forget the cover. They had the guy on the cover and it said, no tricks, no gimmicks, train your horse the natural way. Well, the guy that they had on the cover was the most abusive, used the most tricks and gimmicks of anybody I ever knew. And (laughs) so from then on, I was like, I don't know about doing these articles, you know, Mm -hmm. and stuff. So yeah, I never was much on the self-promotion or the articles, whatever, you know, but I always welcomed anybody to come ride, you know, anytime Mm -hmm. and I still do well, but. Yeah, to answer your question, I mean, there's some things you can kind of talk about, but I, I would prefer to show somebody, you know, some of the stuff. It's hard. It's hard to communicate it. Of course, you got so many people now, the TV shows and the clinicians and and all that. You know, mm-hmm. they can make everything sound good, but in, in reality, uh, you know, it might be totally different. But I, I'd prefer to show somebody. Mm-hmm. Dan, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think if you were if you were in Mike's presence, um, the examples he could set, uh, like he said, the way he would show you how to go about or approach different situations. It's, you know, just how to approach the feedback his horse mm-hmm. would give him. I can remember him telling me about Doc O'Mose and he had been a cutting horse, right, Mike? Yep. Yep. And uh, Mike had had him for a period of time and from what I remember, Mike said he, he just wasn't really kind of getting them to the point he was comfortable going to show. And Mike said, I just took like a whole week and rode that horse. Well, and what? go ahead. What it was, uh, I had bought him and he had been a cutting horse for a couple of years. And uh, actually a guy named Jeff Cochran had had him for a a little while starting him into pleasure. Anyway, I bought him. He was up in Iowa. He belonged to Sonny Thompson in, in Wichita, Kansas. But I got him home, and this horse was hot, you know. Like, he could really jog and lope nice, but he was, 
Well, getting on him was a chore because if you hit him with your leg, when you got on him, he'd jump to the side, you know? And so like getting on him, you know, he'd jump from one leg and jump into the other leg. And, and so I, you know, I'd get him out and I'd lunge him in you know, and I'd get on the right. Well, he wouldn't walk, you know, all he wanted, all he wanted to do was jog and, and lope. Of course, like I said, it was because he was hot, but he wouldn't walk. And, you know, the next day I'd get him out and I'd lunge him again. He still wouldn't walk. And so it went on where me and him got in a hassle about that. And so, yeah, there was like a week where that was the only horse that I rode and I'd get on him and I'd ride him and, you know, he'd get upset. He also couldn't stand for you to take a hold of him and just hold him, you know, in his, in his mouth. And so anyway, but me and him went at each other for a week or more. And I mean, I'm riding two or three times a day and he's been tough. I'm coming to the house and I'm laying out on the floor cause I'm wore out. And, you know, the next day, I mean, he's ready to go again, but somewhere, you know, there the sixth or seventh day, he started giving in. And so I kept doing this, you know, I'd keep, I'd get him out and I'd say I'd ride him. It was over. Well, first just learning to walk and relax, but second to wait. Like if you thought about loping, he was already loping. Before you asked him to lope, he was already loped. And, but he started kind of giving in. And so for another week, I kept doing that. I'd ride him three, four times a day. But I might just go out, walk him around a little bit, and ask him to lope off. And if he was good, I'd stop, get off, put him up. But that was – I didn't think I was going to get him. But he kind of gave in. This would have been in February that year. And it, he was another one that he became an unbeatable horse. But the rest of the year, I never had to ever train on that horse again. Never did but he had one thing if you had ridden him in in a week or more the first time you rode him you needed to just throw him away and let him go and he was still going to be good but don't be taking a hold of him with the bit and holding him and pushing him around it it aggravated him now after the first day or two then you could do you could do that with him if you wanted to but if you hadn't rode him in a little while don't take a hold of his face and hold on to him he, he that drove him crazy so, so again the the difference with that approach was it was i mean you knew how to walk jog and lope right mike it was just a mental thing right the jog and the lope was just was real natural for him you know he didn't have mm -hmm. to be taught how to jog or lope he just needed to be quieted down and and to learn to wait you know and to trust you mm -hmm. you know that you weren't going to spur him or you know all that because he just needed to settle down mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe another way to put that, he was, instead of looking at outside the situation, the situation being while he was ridden, uh, looking outside the situation, like trying to leave, Mike got his mind to the point where he was looking to Mike for an answer mm -hmm. and knew that he could find comfort in that instead of like, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of where the beginning stages of horses get skipped. Yeah. So they push them too far too soon and the horse never learns to find comfort in the situation. That's so then exactly they always right. try to get like, they won't, they, they want to get out of the situation rather than to stick there and learn to learn and stick in the situation and realize that there's an answer there without like triggering that, you know, flee, fight or freeze instinct. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I think Mike just, you know, he just has a niche for that. Yeah. And, and one of the things, the keys I think that he would do is I remember him telling me about Doc almost 
like, you know, Mike would make a correction and, and he would like, it would be black and white, but then Mike would sit there for like 20 minutes. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, exactly. And just do nothing. And that's one of the hardest things to do is nothing. Yeah. So yeah. to me, you know, he made the correction black and white. So the horse understood, okay, well, there's a consequence, but then he let the horse like mentally come back down mm-hmm. and he waited long enough for that to happen. So then the horse, instead of like leaving to find an answer, his own instinct, he found mm-hmm. an answer within what Mike was asking him to do. Mm-hmm. And then he gained confidence and then it was like, mm-hmm. this made sense to the horse. From what it sounds like, Mike, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like to me that you just have such a natural ability to listen to what the horse needs that I love your answer to my question where you're, you're saying, well, I'd actually, I don't think I can actually say that. I think I would need, you know, I'd like to show someone. And what that says to me is that you truly do believe that the horse is the teacher. And so then you would be communicating what the horse needs because you've been spending so many years just listening to what they need. And so many more of us just need to listen. Nikki, I think you're exactly right. You know, like I've always had a little bit of a different, not a philosophy, I guess it's something I learned, but when we was talking about Docomo's, you actually can, let's say you got a horse and he's really fresh, you know, and I've never believed in the theory of loping them or galloping them for 30 minutes and then they're ready to go to work. I really believe that a horse learns like this is like a human does. The first 20 minutes, the first 30 minutes that you're on it is the most important. And to me, if you've got a horse that's a little hyper, you can quiet, quieten him down more by making him walk for a long time instead of trying to lope him down out of it. Now, along with that, the horses, before you ride them, they either need to be turned out, and I do believe in lunging them. I mean, to me, that's one of the most important things. So a lot of horses have to blow off energy. You know, it's just an energy thing with them. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel good. They, you know, they want to buck and play and run around. And if you've got something where you can, you know, turn them out for a while or, and I'd say I'd lunge them. I'm not talking about lunging one for an hour. You know, I'm talking about 15 minutes or, you know, even today, if, if I've missed a day on a horse and even the quiet horses, even the good horses, but if I've missed a day on him, the next day, I'm going to lunge him for about 15 minutes or so, you know, and let him get that out of him. And also, I lunge him without a saddle on him, and I'll bring him back in the stall and maybe tie him up for a while or turn him loose, and then come, you know, a couple hours later, I'll come through and ride him because I want him to know when they have that saddle on and we go ride, it's all business. You know, I say, you know, it's all, we're going to go to work. You know, I'm going to let them enjoy their work, but, you know, we're going to go to work. I don't want to ride one, and what the – on a lunge line can get out of them in 15 minutes. You know, I don't want to ride for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, you know, before they're ready to learn something. I'd like for them to learn something from the very beginning when I step on them. Mm, That's great advice. And there's a lot of great horses that all they need to do is blow off some energy. Yeah. You know, in the period of time between when Mike lunges and then lets them go kind of chill is great advice Mm, yeah such a little thing yeah but i think makes a big difference like so they go out and like mike said they play around a little bit and maybe they get up a little just because they're feeling good and fresh Mm. and then to just leave them alone for a while yeah 
and let them come all the way back down mm -hmm. rather than trigger a bunch of adrenaline and then just get on them and expect them to be quiet. That's exactly right, Dan, because it's a, it's a pain in the butt to go lunge one and then bring it back and, and tie it up in the stall for a while you know and let them calm down because it's a lot easier to saddle them up go lunge them and then get on them you know right right when you're done lunging them but mentally their mind is still you know mm -hmm. if they really ran and played and bucked and played and and like you said their adrenaline you know is kicking in even though physically they they burned off some energy mentally they're still that adrenaline's still going you know so that's why i like to like i said lunge them and then put them back in the stall for a while mm -hmm. uh and get them out because then they come out quieter and mentally then they're ready you know they're ready mm -hmm. to learn something but that's hard to do when you've got you know a lot of horses and you're busy and you're mm -hmm. trying to get everybody worked and and i will say this the numbers game for me like a lot of trainers they keep big numbers of horses and stuff that never worked for me and i always had good help don't get me wrong i always had some really good guys that that worked for me and rode for me but you know i always wanted to saddle my own horse i never had my help ever saddle the horses and come out and warm them up and i just gave them the one i got off of and i got on the one that they've got warmed up uh that's not me and i say that's not me because if you'll ever watch even like some of the big time race horses that you've been around where you de develop a rapport with a horse is when you're taking care of it when mm. when you're giving it a bath and giving it a shower when you're brushing it you know horses like to be groomed you know uh, usually but grooming them and being around that's when you really get to know a horse mm -hmm. you know and i never wanted my horses saddled i always saddled my own horses for a couple one, if the horse come out of the stall and he had a puffy leg that day, you know, I wanted to know it, you know, mm -hmm. if the horse stepped out of the stall and he took a couple lame steps and then he walked out of it and then he's fine. I wanted to know that because then if I'm riding him and he's not good that day, I know that there's something bothering him, mm. you know? And so it was, all, uh, you know, I never did understand. And I've seen a lot of friends of mine do it. You know, they'd keep 35, 40 horses in training and, they ran the most professional training outfit you've ever seen, but that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, I, I wanted to know everything about that horse. And the best time to build a rapport with a horse is when you're grooming it, when you're brushing it, and then when you're giving it, it's hot, you bring it in, you give it a shower. That's the best time to build a rapport with a horse. That makes sense. Mm. Where the horse is, you know, he's more relaxed and you're not really... At expecting a whole lot out of the horse then either mike just with them just being with them yeah and they just they know that them. you're looking after them then right mm. you know they know that you're looking after them interesting yeah and that's it's really a, that's great to hear someone who's been involved at such a high level with horses it's great to hear somebody say that uh, that that the relationship the relational part of horsemanship is that important um, it's wonderful to hear from you. Well, thanks. But that's, like I said, that's always, it's always, you know, has been my deal. It's, uh, it makes it hard to ride many horses in a day's mm. time, but, you know, kind of getting to know them because the horses do. They, when you're doing that, that kind of, they know that you're looking after them, you know. Mm. When they're hot and it's 100 degrees outside and you've worked them and they're, you know, they're sweaty and they're panting and they, you know, to come in and get them cooled off and to, and to take care of them and give them some water. I mean, they know that, mm -hmm. you know. Dan, 
Do you have any other questions? What What did you think of when you made the transition from pleasure horses to rainers? I'm sure what parts of the pleasure did you find um, maybe were even slightly to your advantage that helped you with the rainers some? Yeah, I think it was just basic horsemanship, Dan. Uh, okay. You know, if you if you watch like a lot of the a lot of the really good rainers started off with pleasure horses uh right you know and it went to the rain and, and they, they actually was real successful and i i think that most of that is in the pleasure it it, it taught you the mechanics of a horse yeah and like I body the mechanics, or... like how one moves or you know is he comfortable loping you know uh here and you know i think they that the pleasure horse guys that went into the rain and I think they had a little bit of an advantage just as far as, like I said, knowing the mechanics of a horse. Uh, so of course, most of them, they could ride good. Yeah. You know, and I've always been a firm believer in the better that your horsemanship is, the better you set a horse, the easier it is to train a horse. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, mm -hmm. but I can tell you, I was, when I first got into the reining horses, because you had the reining horses, and the big deal at the time was actually, buying the cow bred horses, the cutting bred horses and making reining horses out of them. And, you know, I, I was blown away that how natural those horses were, you know, really? how they, yeah, how they naturally wanted to stop. I mean, mm. you know, like a lot of those had big stop. I mean, from the first couple rides that, you know, they wanted to stop. Mm -hmm. uh, how easy it was to teach one of them to turn around, you know. I, I was blown away at how good those horses actually were. And how natural they were at their job. Yeah, the just other thing I know that I that I laughed at though was uh, you know having pleasure horses my whole life and and starting colts every year you know and I knew a lot of the reining horse trainers where well, they would send their colt and they'd have lots of help but they would send their colts out to colt break mm -hmm. and you know and I was always like what the hell's up with that you know hell they got plenty of help there why ain't they you know getting them started here well I found out real fast. <laughs> little rain and bread horses, little cow bread horses. When they buck, they was gonna buck your ass off. So <laughs> they they was pretty athletic. So I I sent one or two to the colt breaker also. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's good. Dan, what did you find uh, when you? Of course, did you always have pleasure horses, and then you went in with the raining horses? Yeah. Well, I, I showed like youth kind of all around and pleasure, and then I got just. And I had a rainer. I had a couple of rainers when I was younger, but I mean, mine just had one gear wide open. Right. There was no change in speeds. He was a big stopper, and that's really all I cared that I got stopped. <laughs> but uh, so I, you know, I had some exposure to rainers, and I really, really liked it. And I always enjoyed like schooling the maneuvers. And um, then when I got into the uh, rainers from the pleasure horses when I started to concentrate a little more on that um I just think that the body position that we learned and how to position a horse for him to carry himself in his you know in, in the best position for him to to perform um and you know to develop the softness and and to wait on the rider for the next cue Right. Um, those were a few things that I thought were really helpful. Yeah. From pleasure 
to the Rainers. And even the little things like, Mike, I've heard you talking about, and I, and I remember years ago, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Craig Johnson come to you one time to get you to help him with, like, transitions? Yes, he had some. Of course, Craig had told me, you know, the first fraturity, first time he won the reign in fraturity, and, and Craig told me this himself. Of course, you know, it was pattern five. And he told me, and I remember watching it, you know, at the Congress that year, was he won that because of his transition. The horse mm-hmm. stepping off into a lope and the horse waiting on him. And, you know, that's what won that for him. Uh, and then this was years later in the 90s sometime. But he had a couple that he was having trouble getting them to lope off correctly, you know. And, and what a – and Craig – let me tell you, Craig is a great horse trainer. Uh, he really is. But like these particular horses what that he had, and I'm going to go back to all the horses, but horse, there's times you got to set them up body position-wise where they can step off into a lope, and you need to get them in position. But as long as you've got a hold of their face, a lot of horses think that they can't go into a lope while you've got a hold of them. And to me, like the key to that, is set them up, you know, body position-wise, head-wise. And then the, when you kill them, you got to leave them alone. you got to turn loose of their face. Then they feel like they're free enough to step off behind and pick their shoulders up and go off into a low. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, a lot of horses, they just think once you keep them bound up, in, you know, with your hand, they feel like they can't step off into a low. Mm-hmm. And actually, that transition has been something – training pleasure horses i actually trained them and finished them out by working on the transition not not loping them till they was tired right it was that transition yeah which is i mean that sort of thing from the pleasure to the raining which is as the as the rainers have developed it's become a lot more refined and all those little things don't you think mike yes exactly <laughs> compared exactly. to like Years ago, like the you know the transition off into the lope. I mean, they just jumped into it. Yeah, whenever I got started in the reining horses in like '98, I had some '99, and at that time, most of the reiners were still scared to death of the transition. You know, they had mm-hmm. tweaked their scoring system. You know, now to where they couldn't trot off into a lope. You know, they had to lope off, and I can remember you know, a lot of them coming to me and say, how do you do that? How do you do that? And, you know, they, they just say they had never done that, you know, right. before. And now, you know, now they believe me, they got it down. I mean, it's amazing, amazing how good the reigning horse trainers and the reigning horses are today. Yes. So Dan, what, what was the draw for you? Were you just looking for a change? <laughs> what was the draw for you going from the pleasure to concentrating a little more on the reining? Um, well, I had always, even like my pleasure horses, I would always teach them to turn around and, uh, you know, do some of the maneuvers. And, you know, some of them I would even teach to stop just a little bit just because I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I had shown some reiners when I was younger and then got like 
Well, I even started a rainer at Alex's one time by accident. We had a little mare come in there that belonged to a little gray mare. She was by Rugged Lark. And uh, I remember Mike was there. Actually, he probably doesn't remember, but I had her in the round him. As you know, she had been sent to us. She was out of a pleasure mare that Alex won the Congress on when she was by Rugged Lark. Could not lope a step. Yeah. Do you remember that, Mike? No, I don't remember the mare, but. No, but I remember Mike kind of chuckling to me and saying, the little gray horse, not real fond of loping around or some such thing like that. We just kind of laughed. But anyway, I rode her a little bit. I never really tried to make her go around like a pleasure horse because she just couldn't. But she seemed to have like an instinct. She wanted to stop. She wanted to turn. The first time I ever asked her to change leads, I mean, it was as easy as changing directions. Yeah. Uh, and like to teach her to come back from a, like a large, fast lope, I just quit riding. And she always looked through the bridle. She wasn't a great mover, but when you moved her up, you know, not, not, not to go slow, but just her natural um, rhythm and balance in the canter. Um, and, uh, so then, uh, it was the people, Mike, that owned, uh, was it Sleepy's man? What was their name? Uh, the Millers. Clover yeah. The Millers. Miller. Yeah. That's Cloverdale. Cloverdale yeah. Farm. Yeah. So yeah. then, um, of course we only did pleasure horses. So I, I got her turning around, stopping and doing all the maneuvers. And, uh, Alex said, why don't you take her to Bar Barbara Williams? Anyway, she took her up and she ended up winning the ladies reigning at the Congress. Yeah. And that made a really nice horse. So I was always interested in the reiners, even when I was riding pleasure horses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. yeah. It's not anything new for me to have an interest in that event. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to be able to hear the connection that people have around saying, okay, well, I've been in this discipline. First of all, why were we in that discipline? How did we get involved in that discipline? And then having the open-mindedness to go and, and bring your horsemanship that you already have into a new discipline and, uh, and really, you know, just become more experienced as a horseman or horsewoman overall. Um, I think it's really important to, to stay open to that. Yeah. I think that the, the true horsemen too, just like all of it. They like yeah. every part of it. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, just, I enjoy teaching one something on the ground. Like, I don't always have to be riding it either. It's just, there's a lot of sense of satisfaction to just see that horse's mind work and be able to open the line of communication so that mm. he's like, he's trying for you. I mean, that doesn't, I don't have to be riding a rain or a pleasure horse or whatever. I, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Like, I just really like communicating with them and it's a real sense of satisfaction yeah. for me. I do too. And actually when you was just talking about that, Merritt Alex is that, and you talk about rugged lark, well, you know, that was a great horse mm -hmm. for himself. I mean, he could do, he could do it all. Yes. You know, from the raining and the pleasure. And, you know, back in the day, of course that, and actually, my favorite pleasure horses were horses that were athletic enough that they could have done the raining also. Yeah, they're 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 useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do well, you remember him, Nikki Rugged Lark? I don't know. 
So he um, was, uh, how many times was he super horse at the World Show, Mike? Do you remember? It was a few times, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't remember for sure. I know he, but, uh, I remember the horse, it was Lynn Palm showed him. I was trying to, if it was a pleasure horse as a two-year-old, when you know he could do the hunt seat also. Yes. And then uh, Mike Corrington had him, and he would have won the reigning fraturity, uh, but Mike went off pattern on him. And, of course, he won a bunch in the reigning. But, I mean, mm -hmm. he was a horse that could do the hunt seat, could do the pleasure, and could do the reigning, mm -hmm. you know, all at the same time. Yeah, Dan, yeah, he, you have to remember that uh, that I've only been in the Western world for 11 years. Yeah, well, Mike and I have been all around a right? little long. Yeah, so you like, guys you guys are throwing some dates out there. And I mean, uh, there's some of those dates I wasn't even born yet. So we have to remember. Now, now that's, that's just nasty. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know what I mean. So, so yeah, when you're, when you're speaking about the horses, it's, I definitely appreciate these iconic horses for sure, but there's a lot of horses that are well known in the Western world that I have yet to hear of. And uh, that I absolutely love to hear you guys talk about because it's fantastic to, and your guys' memories of like the dates and the horses and the breeding. It's phenomenal. I love it. That's it. We're getting old. <laughs> No, no, I'm not getting old, Mike. <laughs> Absolutely not. But, uh, but it is, it's interesting to hear because I do feel like when I grew up, I grew up in the English world, Mike, and uh, breeding was, I, I grew up quite competitive, but breeding wasn't quite as, I don't know if it was, it wasn't as focused on as it real as what I noticed in the Western world. Um, and maybe it's just the level that I had, I had gotten to within my riding career, but I really admire people who, you know, know the breeding and know what, what the studs are really good for and what the mares are really good for and how you combine them and create specific style horses. And I just, yeah, I love all of it. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, Nick, why you said that, and then, but I'm, I'm going to say this even to today. Mm -hmm. if i'm looking at a horse like to buy it or what i go by the confirmation mm -hmm. and to me the breeding is actually kind of a plus you know or if it's bred really good then i know i'll be able to resell it for more money or, mm -hmm. or whatever but for me i don't care how good a horse is bred if it's confirmation if he's got a, a big flaw in his confirmation or or i don't know how, like how he's built you know i won't mm -hmm. buy it yeah, uh, I'm. I still go by the horse's confirmation. That's what my grandfather taught me as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, like, if you're walking through a a sale barn, Mike, you're gonna go look, tick off the boxes on the ones you like when you look at them, and then those ones you'll look at their breeding. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that that's that makes sense to me. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, because I I'm a firm believer they got to be whether it's raining or the pleasure or but they got to be built to be able to do their job consistently. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I've seen some freaky, like two-year-old reining horses uh, would have these just freaky stops on them, you know, but the horse wasn't very good hipped. You know, he wasn't real good. He was kind of weak looking behind, you know, maybe his hocks didn't sit just right, but here he is. He's got this, this freaky, unreal stop. But a lot of times those, they end up not 
not making it or they'll make it maybe as a young horse but not as an older horse and you look at the horses that's winning today the reigning horses um and if you go up and and look at them their confirmation is going to be really really good because if they've got a flaw somewhere it's going to show up mm-hmm. before they get there mm-hmm. even if they can do the thing they probably won't even stay if sound. they can do the thing but they might not be able to do it for long Right. right, not built to last. Coming up sore. Right. Yes. Yes. Well, guys, anything else good. you want to? Anything else well, you want to hash out? Yeah, here's another little thing. <laughs> Dan, you will <laughs> talk all night long. So I think I've got Mike talked into coming up to do a clinic. No way. Yes. So I'm telling you, we're in for a treat. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 we are. Yeah, we are. So uh, we're talking about dates and I told him he can't come out till like hopefully this whole COVID thing oh, will have yeah. get behind us. And yeah. we're talking about like May or the 1st of June. So he doesn't freeze it to that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Do not even think of coming this way anytime soon. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be like just a small number. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just really like minded, interested people. Mm. and uh, I think it'll be amazing. I don't have a doubt. Well, gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. I respect your time, and I feel like this has just been a lovely conversation. It's been great to facilitate a conversation between the two of you, and I feel like I'm just able to kind of sit back and hear a conversation between friends, and that is absolutely um, an honor really to have you on tonight. So thank you so much for being with me and uh, Mike, thank, thank you for sharing your stories and uh, you know, sharing a story that you haven't shared very often is always a bonus. Well, that's the thing. If I can interrupt. Yeah, for sure. Dan. Uh, I just think it's important that um, Mike shares some of his, like his, Oh yes. Passion some yeah. of his passion and, you know, the way he looks at the relationship with his horses. And I know that's what you're all about. Mm-hmm. Like when you talk about a horse going home with the owner, um, you know, the owner has to have an understanding of how to read the horse. And Mike's so much about that. And was, again, like I said earlier, he's like 35 years ahead of his time, as far as mm-hmm. I was concerned. And I just think it's, it's really nice for everybody to, hear from Mike himself a little bit about what I admire about him. So I, I just, that's one of the reasons I was excited about having him on. Well, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate that. Nikki, thank you very much. And yes, I'd be looking forward to, uh, to meeting y'all and, and, and coming up sometime. Mm-hmm. But Dan, me and you've talked about, you've got to come down. Yeah, well. Uh, whenever, whenever the COVID yes. deal lives and you can come over, you know, come down. That sounds like a better deal, Dan. Just saying. Well, I mean, I usually always did get down like either February or March for the whole month. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, but anyway, I'm not sure what's going to happen this year with this COVID thing. But uh, yeah, I'll be down as soon as possible. That's a guarantee. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I'm sure we'll probably be up all night talking. So. Oh, I guarantee I hope- you guys would be. I hope so. Maybe yeah. we could even drag you out to the golf course, Mike. <laughs> I used to play golf, but I gave it up a long time ago. Uh, yeah, well, you don't, you don't have to worry about 
complain. Well, Alex maybe a little bit, but I I just hit it all over the golf course. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like fun. Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, listen, Mike, I really enjoyed talking to you and you too, Nikki. It was a great conversation, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot yeah. of fun. Thanks so much, yeah. guys. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Nikki, and thank you, Dan. I enjoyed okay. it also. that's it for today. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please leave a review and share it with your friends. To learn more about me and what else I have on the go, skip on over to NikkiPorter.ca. Thanks again for listening and we'll connect again next week. Until then, remember, you have the power to take the reins and live the life you've always wanted. You just have to step into the arena with an open heart and an open mind.